I'm wondering if, uh, by the way, let me mention this. I know some people have already asked me tonight, you know, what's up with the Wi-Fi. It could be that I think the youth have sucked up all our bandwidth watching the game upstairs is what's probably happening. So if you're trying to access the YouVersion Bible app and, and use your phone to follow along and take notes, you'll, you'll have to use your own data, I think, tonight if you're doing that. But let me just say a few things. There are, um, I don't know about you, but there are some things, you know, we have five senses and some people would say there's more and there probably are, but, but I know for me, there are certain smells, maybe you're like this, that literally rocket me back to a time and a place in my life. Has anybody ever had that experience? It can be a lot of things, you know, and maybe for you like me, I mean, it can be all sorts of things. Sometimes they're powerful smells, sometimes just, just a faint smell, uh, and obviously, if you're hungry, certain smells, you know, elicit different responses. Some smells can be very repulsive. I don't know if you've had that happen before. But, but for the most part, I'm thinking of good things. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and I know aromatherapy is big these days. But let me just, before I even ask for some of your suggestions, let me just put a couple pictures up and see what you think about some of these things. Aromas are powerful. So when you see this picture, can you smell it? That wet dog. There's nothing quite like it, is there? I know. And I, <clears throat> I love dogs, but man, when they're wet or liquors, no, I'm not a fan of that. Um, okay, how about this, you know, kind of the aromatherapy thing and the oils, and a lot of people are into that. And, and um, I know up in our office, Deborah, she's got one going every day, and so we always kind of stop in and see if it works on me before I walk down the hall. It doesn't usually, I don't, I don't probably linger long enough for it to do any good, but um, how about this smell? Oh, yeah. In fact, oh, yeah, enough that I put three different versions up there. This is my favorite right here. I'm not sure if that's an actual thing, but if it was, I would use it um, if it was a thing. How about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that does it for me, too. How about... No? Ah, she said, ah. Okay. How about... It's rice. I put it on there because, for me, that rockets me back to a time in my life. We ate rice a lot. <clears throat> when I was a kid, in a lot of different ways. And if you have not, <laughs> if you if you have not had rice in certain cultures, there's certain there's different ways to cook it. Like I grew up with sticky rice. It's different than what I experience here. Like Mexican rice, it's different, totally different thing. Uh, for some people, smells can be a negative thing, and maybe that's what you. What are some smells that for you guys are powerful? I'm just curious. Okay, Aunt Mary's perfume is what Carol said. This is a true story. This happened to me once. I was walking through the mall, and I was, it's a long time ago. I was walking through a mall, not that mall, but a mall. And as I was walking through the mall, I literally turned around and I started to say grandma. And it was really awkward because the poor girl was not that old. But, but she was wearing the exact same perfume my grandma always wore. And it just, it's just, it was there. She was there. What other smells get you? Yes. A little black animal with a white stripe. Okay. I've seen those before. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Has anybody ever been sprayed by a skunk? 
Yeah, that is a powerful smell. I like it in small amounts, but you know, the full-on smell, ooh, that's, that can be, yeah, that can be dangerous. Uh, what other smells get you? Someone back here, Dave? Oh yeah, that's a good smell. Wood smoke and then, yeah, burning leaves. What were you going to say, Lois? Paper, <laughs> Paper mills smell like money. Okay. Okay. Barbecue. Yeah, definitely. Barbecue is a good thing. Very good thing. Anything else? Any other smells for you? The smell after the rain, that kind of ozone smell. Chili. What else? Anything else? Isn't it funny how powerful these smells are? And everyone you have said has resonated with me. I've smelled that. You know, there's certain things. Let me just list a few more. How about, how about, well, that probably isn't a smell you're familiar with, but I just thought it was funny. Um, how about that? Hey. <laughs> I'm not sure why this, I'm not sure why anybody's doing this, but evidently that's a job somebody had. <laughs> and this one I thought was hilarious too. Um, yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, this is interesting, but that may be preferable to the other one. I don't know. It depends on people. But, but how about this? Um, pizza has a smell. Uh, some of you may be curry. There's certain ethnic foods that have a distinct smell. Um, I, a lot of these you've already mentioned. How about the smell of cordite? Cordite, like the smell of a, a, a gunpowder after a shot or a match has been lit. I mean, that's such a distinct smell. How about um, sulfur, even? Rotten eggs, yeah. Or vanilla, fresh cut grass. Anybody, anybody had the smell of an old attic? You know, and you go in, and you're like, oh, I've been in this before. My, grand, my grandparents had an old barn. It just had a very distinct smell. And I've smelled it in other barns, and I don't know if it's what it is about it, but, you know, there's a certain smell there. Uh, cedar. Um, rubber, decay, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something you seldom forget. But there's certain things that just take you and put you someplace else. I don't know about you, growing up, we always had uh, fixer-upper cars. So anytime, still to this day, if I'm on the highway and smell radiator fluid or anything like that, I panic and think it's me because that's just how it always was. It was always me. So it's one of those things, smells are powerful. They, they, they have the ability to just rocket you into an experience. Sometimes, maybe this happens to you, but sometimes I can be at that place in my mind and I'm seeing things and it's, they say actually that the sense of smell is the most powerful sense we have, which is weird because I would think it would be sight or one of these other things, but the reason they say that is because none of the other senses do what smell does. Smell will take you to a place and you will see, feel, you'll have the emotions come back. All of that happens with a smell, not necessarily with all the other senses. And I think it was part of that reason that Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he, he's such a master. You know, as you read through the scripture, he does certain things that you read it and you think, uh, you know, he, he was just a creative writer. Something else that we see characteristic in his writing is, there's times where he'll be writing a letter, and I think a lot of times we forget that, that there are letters in the New Testament. He was writing a letter, and most of us, as you write a letter, you pretty much do it in one setting, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but 
Well, we don't write letters anymore, really, do we? I mean, you might send an email, but it's not the same. But in Paul's letters, often he will, he will take a digression. It's almost like a little rabbit trail he'll take. Then he'll come back to the main theme he was writing about. So here in uh, 1 Corinthians, I mean 2 Corinthians, he's, he's actually talking about salvation and what God has done for us. Then he takes this little detour that I want to take you on. And I, I touched on it Sunday, but I want to develop the whole section right here tonight. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. <clears throat> Excuse me. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those and those who are punish, uh, perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? And I don't know if, uh, how much you guys have studied you know, Roman history. and This, this picture is way too small for you to really get an idea of what's going on. But Paul, what he's doing is he's making a reference to something that most of his readers would have actually seen at one time or another. I mean, they were all part of the Roman Empire, and anytime Rome would, you know, the, the soldiers would go out on a battle and have some victory, what they would do is as they came back all the way to Rome, you know, all, lo- all roads lead to Rome, they would march these captives. They didn't have trains. The captives had to walk. And then what they would do is lead their captives in triumphal procession. So what you see here is a medieval depiction of that. And you can kind of see, I'll use my little pointer. Uh, I'm not going to, you can't see it, but I'll show you another picture. This is, this is one of the arches that's actually in Rome still today. It doesn't look like this anymore, but you can see them doing a processional through the arch there in Rome. And what they would do is they would show off their captives. So sometimes it would be kings they conquered or people they conquered could be slaves. Sometimes, you know, they would mock them. And then here's the, that same arch today. That's what it looks like today. And then here is a relief on top of that arch showing this triumphal procession as if it was going through there. So next time you're in Rome, you'll have to check that out. There's another example of it right there. They do have a menorah. Yep. So here's, let me just run through a couple of the things that were going on there. The first thing, I don't know if you remember and caught what Paul said there, is we are taken captive by Christ. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound very positive, does it? I mean, who wants to be a captive? Who would want to be a slave? But the truth is, we, are, we do turn ourselves over to somebody. Now, maybe some of you are old enough to remember uh, that old song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. Anybody would hear that anymore? Yeah, Bob Dylan, when he became a Christian. He talked about the fact that we all serve somebody. You know, and he went into all these details. It could be this, it could be this, it could be this, but you're going to serve somebody. And the fact is, we do serve somebody. We live in this illusion, and most people in the world live in this illusion that they're totally free, but they're not. They're a slave to themselves. They're a slave to something. But the thing is, when you turn yourself over to Christ, it's actually a wonderful thing. You, you, when you become captive to him, it's a joyful, freeing experience. In fact, there's almost there, he, by calling us captives, he's really... Uh, putting in that term a contrast between what it means to be a captive and yet when in reality we're spiritually free for the first time ever. Now, a lot of movie makers have, 
have used that imagery to kind of show that, you know, we're living in a world that we think we know what's going on, but then something else is really going on. And most of us are aware of the fact that we live in a physical world, but then there's a spiritual dynamic to the world. And if you read the scriptures and believe what it says, then you know that there is, there is an end coming for all of us. And the fact is, when we turn ourselves willingly over to be captured by him, that's the most wonderful kind of capture there could possibly be. The next thing he talked about is, is an aroma. And the picture there is something, again, that the people reading this or hearing it for the first time, they would have been very familiar with this. For, and it's kind of a multi-layered explanation, but here's what would happen. Part of that procession would be people carrying incense pots. Another part of it is a lot of cities would welcome the conquering army into town by lighting incense along the road. So it was a common thing for people as you would smell that, just like our smell. I, we talked about all those smells earlier. There was a certain sense when you would smell all this incense, if you were part of the people who were being who were the victors, it would remind you of victory. On the other hand, if you were one of the captured, you know, defeated army, that was death. Those smells weren't positive because you knew that this was going to all end with you being killed. So that's where Paul is playing with those terms that he says, for some of us, it's the smell of victories. For some, it's the smell of death. It's, a, it's an interesting thing, too. I was reading one <clears throat> history, and they said one of the reasons that they would put these, these incenses along the roads as the armies would come through. Can anybody guess why that might be? They stunk. You realize there weren't like showers on the, you know, <laughs> on the way. And it wasn't like they had deodorant. And these guys are out fighting a war for however long, and now they're coming in. You know, it's not like they ran the, all the captives through any kind of cleaning thing either. So when the army and all that would come through, I mean, they, they're carrying all their food. They're carrying, I mean, everything's coming through your town. It's going to be quite a smell. So there was a dual reason for the, the pots there. But that's the imagery that Paul is bringing up in their minds. And that's the thing that he's trying to play on that kind of thing. And he asks that question. I love the question he asks. Who's equal to such a task? It's an obvious you know, question, I mean, answers like nobody. None of us are equal to this task to be the literal aroma of Christ. And then another part of how he played on that term is he said that we are the aroma of Christ. In other words, as we walk through town, people are supposed to smell Christ on us. For some people, that's going to smell like life. But then others who maybe have rejected Christ or are struggling with the idea to submit to Christ that may not smell as sweet. It may be convicting to them. It may be a situation where just because of the way you're living your life, they're irritated by it, and it's not necessarily even personal. It's just that for them, for you, for them, you're representing a claim on their life which they're not willing to submit to or deal with yet. So because of that, their response to you may be really a response to the aroma you're giving off, you know, even unintentionally. <clears throat> and who is equal to such a task? And then the next thing he does is he, he goes on with this whole, he, he's got this whole list of uh, illustrations he's going to use. So the next thing he does, he starts to talk about, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. And what he's referring to here 
And he's talking about peddlers because up in, in this time in history, you, you, most of us are aware that the Greeks were really into oratory. And there were lots of professional speakers, a ton. I mean, that was a very, very common profession in that day. And so what they would do is travel around and speak. And they might be reading old poetry or they might be reading philosophy to people or just their own speeches. So what was happening, the historians tell us during this time, is that there were some people who saw money to be made by being professional speakers to these young Christian communities. So they would come into these communities and they would speak for money. And so a lot of times people would say, well, who are you? Where are you from? And so they would, uh, oh, anyway, we're, I'm getting ahead of myself. So anyway, they would, they would want to, to be paid for their speaking to the Christian, the young Christian communities here. So Paul is saying, we're not like that. We're not asking for it. you. You might remember that he paid his own way. Remember what his profession was? He was a tent maker. So he would actually come to churches and say, look, I, I deserve to be paid by you, but just so there's no question, I'm going to ha- make my own money and still give you the word of God. So he's kind of making a reference to that there. I know for me, sometimes I, you know, you think about, I remember, uh, I remember, maybe some of us are old enough to remember in the eighties when it seemed like all these Christian, you know, really famous Christian ministries were falling and it had a lot to do with mishandling of money. And it was kind of embarrassing. And the church really got a black eye during that time because it just seemed like there was just a lot, a lot of extravagance, you know, represented through Christianity And it's really unfortunate, and it just reminds me of this scripture here. The next thing that happened with these peddlers is because there started to be some, you know, people started to get wise to this whole thing, is they would require them to have some type of letter of recommendation saying, hey, I'm connected to this group in Jerusalem, or I'm from Antioch, or or I know Paul, or Peter, or somebody. And so what Paul says next is, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you. And he says, no, we don't need that. He said, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. Then he says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I, like, I found this online. I thought it was cool said, personal delivery, God does not Twitter or tweet. He posts people. <laughs> he does. He posts people. That's what he does. He posts people. It has nothing to do with, with it, uh, you know, what people might. He doesn't, Paul's saying, I don't need a recommendation letter. The way you live is a recommendation letter about the way I trained you and taught you. And then he carries it forward and says, not only that, you, each one of you, or a living recommendation letter of Christ and what he's done in you. Now, with all that said, keep in mind what he started this with. And he said, I mean, we're the aroma. And then he said, we're, he's not a peddler and we're recommendation letters. But he'd already said, who's equal to such a task? Because I don't know about you, but there's times where I'm reading this and thinking, God, I want to be, be worthy of this. But it's tough because it's hard to live up to sometimes. Then the next thing he says gets even more difficult, maybe. He says... Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Paul continually does this. Here's a man who was qualified. I keep emphasizing that because he is the apostle who is educated, 
He was trained. He was a debater. You know, he wrote all these letters. He wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody else. And he constantly says, it's not me. It's God in me. You know what I love about that? That means all of us can do this. Because if, if, if it was based on all, or for any of us, on our own abilities, then most of us would fall short. But just like Paul, we can say, it's not us. It doesn't come from ourselves. Our competence comes from God. Then he says in verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What do you think he's talking about when he said the letter kills? What's he talking about? The law. Paul is always referring back to how the old law is no longer the standard by which we judge ourselves. It's the new covenant. Now, even saying that, I guarantee you that some people would have thought, what? What is he saying? New covenant. Are you raising yourself to the level of Moses, the original covenant giver? Are you saying this law is better than that? And he is. (laughs) He really is. He really is saying that. That would have been really tough for some people to hear. And if, if we could make maybe a generalization, but I think it's an accurate one, the difference between the old law and the new law, as you read through, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus would say, you have heard it said this, but I say this. I don't know if any of you have uh, maybe listened to a rabbi or heard some of the way that the Jewish thought goes, but most of the time, Jewish thought is, is centered on following the rules, the letter of the law, and it's based specifically and solely on actions. But Jesus took it deeper than that. And he said it's more about the heart. It's what the heart does. So, for instance, in uh, Matthew 5, 28, where he says, you know, you have heard it said, you know, not to lust after a woman, but I say if you have or commit adultery, but I say if you've lusted after in your heart, you've committed adultery already. James takes it even further. You know, and James says in, in chapter 1, verse 14, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. That's not the way the Jews would have thought about it. They would have thought about it like you could have those thoughts in your mind as long as you didn't act on it. But the new covenant is totally different. It's about a regeneration and a change in your heart. In a way, it's almost more difficult because sometimes it's easier just to follow the rules and not mean it. Remember when your mom said, kiss your sister? Remember? Hug her and remember? I didn't mean that. And, and, and I love how Paul does this. He's taking it so much deeper. He already said the competence comes from God, but then he says that we... Not only is there a new covenant, but you, we are going to be ministers of the new covenant. It's hard sometimes, I think, to fully understand the gravity of what he's saying here. Not only is he saying there's a new covenant, which was a big deal to, to, to be replacing the Jewish way, but then he said, we're going to be ministers of that. Notice what he's doing. Because there were times where people even challenged Paul's apostleship. And he's now saying, we're all ministers. He's saying, you don't have to be specially educated or trained, or even better, as a Jew, part of that specific lineage. You don't have to be a Levite. You realize all the priests were still Levites through that time. Paul is saying, we're all ministers. He's opening up to everybody. 
And what he's also saying is, which is good, is it's not from us, it's from God. He's doing it in us, and he empowers us to be the ministers of this new covenant. Now, of course, that adds some responsibility to each of us, but it's an awesome thing because there's no special requirements there other than you become a Christian. So the next thing he does, he keeps, you know, you know some people complain about mixed metaphors. Paul just piles them one right on the other. He's got example after example, example, but they're all the same thing. We're representing Christ. You know, the first thing were the aroma. So the, the smell we leave should, should remind people of Christ. Then what was the next thing he said? Living letter, right? We're the living letter read by all men. People read us day in, day out. You know that. Now he's saying that we're ministers of a new covenant. And then the next thing he says is this. <clears throat> Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. There's so much in there. It's amazing. It's so deep. Um, he, what he's saying here, that part about the veil He's speaking to people who may or may not have even known Jewish history, but do you remember when Moses went and got the, the, the tablets of stone? Then he would go in and speak with God. He developed this glow. And then when he would come out to the people, it was very disturbing for them to see Moses glowing. I even put a little picture in here of it. I mean, that's just kind of an artist's rendition of what he looked like, and we don't know what he really looked like. But this is what Moses did, is he put a veil over his face when he would come out so that people weren't so disturbed and they weren't so distracted by the glow, right? He's reflecting God's glory. That's what he's doing here. But what happened was, sadly, is if you read the scripture, it's in Genesis 33. Sadly, once the glow started to fade, even Moses, I mean, as great of a man as he was, he kept the veil on because he didn't want people thinking it was still fading. And then Paul, as he's talking about that, that glow, he says that we are to, uh, first thing he says is that we have freedom. Powerful. To think we have freedom. What do we have freedom from? What? Did somebody say sin? Sin? I thought I heard sin. What else do we have freedom from? From, from the law, condemnation, death. What else? What? Death, hell, and the grave. All right, what else? That's all good. I mean, there's no answer really right necessarily, but I'm thinking about the futility and the hopelessness of just living in the present and thinking it all ends right now. And what do we have freedom to? What has God given us freedom to? Freedom to what? That's the biggest one of all. Al just went right to the the, the big core of it. We have actual freedom to come right into the presence of the Lord God Almighty ourselves. That didn't exist before. When Paul is throwing around these terms, they are very weighted, heavy terms. And people who knew those cultures would have understood exactly what he was talking about. In fact, for a lot of them, that freedom was offensive. That's why those Jews followed him around and persecuted him everywhere he went, because they didn't want people to have that freedom. Freedom's scary, isn't it? And we all, I mean, as, as human beings, we always resort back to control. I mean, we, we say we want freedom, and then the freedom gets, just get a little loosey and goosey, and you're like, oh, wait, let's rein this in a little bit, people. Freedom can be scary. What else are we free to do? 
free to live, free to live. We're free to have wholeness and peace and hope and everlasting life and, and kindness and a relationship with God that we never, ever, ever had before. And then he says that we're to reflect the glory of God. Now, in the Old Testament, it says nobody could look on the face of God. In fact, Moses, even though he was speaking with God, didn't even see him. And at one point, you remember that story where God passes by and all Moses sees is the, I mean, the different interpretations say, you know, hinder parts or whatever, but it's talking about just whatever the wake almost like a boat would leave behind. And that still made him glow. But the thing is, the glory of God doesn't, we are reflecting that glory. It doesn't kill us or hurt us. In fact, what Paul says is that we are transformed by that more and more into the image of his son. A lot has been said and theorized about what the image of God is, you know, because the Bible says God made man in his own image. And the image of God would have been distorted at the fall, but there are some things I believe we retain about the image of God. And what he's saying is that we're going to be changed more and more and more into his image. We're going to look more and more like his son. People all the time, when they say, well, what's the image of God? And I'll say, you know, the book of Hebrews and, and Colossians say that Jesus is the exact image of God. You want to know what God was like? Look at Jesus, full of grace, full of power, full, full of loving kindness, full of, of righteousness. He was full of all those things and will be more and more and more like him. And then Paul, continuing on in this theme, if you go further into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. He echoes that again, that, that idea that it's not about us, because it could be overwhelming, couldn't it? To think about all these things we're supposed to be and knowing that, that none of us are really capable or live up to it. But he says we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the treasure? What's he talking about? salvation yes we have the that what he's talking about also is the good news we're reflecting all this stuff from god not just to be you know pretty reflective things it's so that people see it and want that same thing too i mean there's no point in us reflecting his glory and being turned into the image of god if we're not going to share that with everybody we come in contact with we're going to be ministers of this new covenant and the idea behind being a minister of it is that you minister it to other people and they want to join and be part of it as well That's the whole idea behind it. That's the treasure. And I love that he talks about how it was clay pots. That was actually a very common metaphor for human weakness and the fact that it was really ordinary clay pots. You know, if I was God, I know, and I had some great treasure, wouldn't you put it in something real fancy? Or maybe a safe? I mean, I don't know where you put your treasures. But God chose to put this incredible treasure into common, ordinary clay pots like us. That's reassuring to me, actually. Because there's a lot of times where I think, man, Lord, I wish I could do this for you better, and I wish I could do this, and I could do this. And I feel like he says, I made you like this, and I want you to do what you can do. And I want it to be more. And he says, I've just asked you to do what you can do. He gives each of us a measure of that. And each of us are supposed to be ministers of this new covenant. But be reassured, it's okay to be you. 
because he made you that way. That's how he wanted it to be. He, I, I put some pictures of just regular clay pots that have been unearthed in Israel, and they put some coins in this one just to kind of illustrate that whole idea. And then I thought it would be funny just to put it in this, because we have this idea of what's common, right? So that's one reason why these little safes that you can buy for your house, because it's a common thing. No one's going to look twice at that shaving cream can, but you put a treasure in it. And I know there's other things like that. Some people have clocks like that or whatever. And the idea is that it's common and people would overlook it. And the same is true a lot of times with, with you, maybe about other people, but even yourself, that you might not think that you were worthy to hold a treasure, but you are. And the reason you are is because clearly, oh wait, clearly, that power is from God, not from us. You know what it reminds me of is this verse in, in one of my favorite verses in Acts 4. This is right after Peter and John in chapter 3 in Acts. They're walking through up to the temple. And as the Bible says, they come into the gate beautiful. And they look at this beggar. And as they look at him, the beggar gets excited, thinks they're going to give him some money. And Peter says, uh, silver and gold, have I none? Remember the song? But such as I have, give I thee. <laughs> in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And he does, and it creates this big uproar, and they get hauled in front of the Jewish leaders. And whose name did you do this in? And they say, we did it in the name of Jesus. And they say, stop preaching it. They say, we can't. How could we do that? And then the religious rulers say this. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were just like you and me, unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And then they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference. That's what makes us a vessel that he can use or a, a, <clears throat> a clay pot that's worthy of his use, that's worthy of holding that treasure, is that we've been with Jesus. And clearly that power's from God. We don't do it in our own power. We don't, we don't have our own treasure. We, we're only trusted with the treasure because the power of God is the thing that can do it. Paul says it another way in other scriptures where he says it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And who is worthy of such a task? It's a good question. Who is worthy of such a task? Think about the aroma. How do you smell day to day? I know a lot of you have Christian homes. That's awesome. Not all of us, though. Some of us live in environments that aren't all Christians. But even in your Christian home, this sounds weird, I know, but who smells you most? I mean, who smells you when you're not smelling great? They know. They know who you are. <clears throat> are you kind? Are you forgiving? Um, at work, do they know? Do you, you know? Do you laugh along with the jokes? Do you stand up for things? Are you? I mean, it, it's important. Or does it smell like hypocrisy that you say one thing but live out another? Even as a church, we could ask ourselves this: How does our church smell? I mean, how are we? How do we treat people? Who come in, you know, are there certain people who are more welcome than others? Think about the living letter. It's a powerful thought. You know, what kind of a letter are people reading as they watch us day in and day out? As your ministers of the new covenant, it's a lot. It's a lot for us to carry. Do we really then reflect the Lord's glory with what we do? It's still, though, overwhelming to think about we're just simple jars of clay that God has chosen to use for his glory. 
I read this not too long ago. I had to write it in here. But the world at its worst needs the church at its best. You know, <clears throat> it's, it, it can be popular to bash the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about Crown Point. I'm talking about Christian churches. But the thing about it is God chose to use the local church to spread the gospel. That's his, that's his plan. I, I don't know about you, but, and I'll tell you a quick story. I, when I um, was getting ready to graduate from college, um, right about then, Billy Graham had done a self-study to, to determine, he wanted to determine the people coming, do you remember those days in the mid-80s? I mean, thousands of people going forward in crusades, you know, and he wanted to know where, if that was the first time they heard the gospel, when they were responding you know, where were they at in their walk of faith? Had someone else shared the gospel first? Was this just them coming to Christ? You know, what was really happening? He wanted to know. And <clears throat> I don't know if you remember the day, those days. I mean, Jim Baker was huge. Jimmy Swaggart was huge. There were huge ministries on TV that were, that were a lot of people, I mean, coming to Christ. And so <clears throat> he had done the self-study. And so I went to this meeting. It was just weeks before school was out. And uh, the guy running the meeting, he, he gave us all this form. And on it, he, had, he wanted us to check off what the percentages of what we thought how people came to Christ. And there was a ton of things listed. You know, TV evangelists, uh, churches, you know, preachers giving the gospel message, um, you know, friend or relative. Uh, did I mention TV ministries? You know, crusades. I mean, all these things were listed. And we had to do percentages, you know, that added up to 100%. And I just did what I thought. I, I, I mean, I know what I saw. I mean, Billy Graham, I put that big. You know, I put TV big. You know, I put, I put because I've been to churches where pastors would give the altar call and people come to Christ. I put that not as big as those other things. But here's what just was shocking to me. The actual percentage is what Billy Graham found is that only 0.02% of the people who came, that was the first time. And if you think about it, of course, I mean, who just walks into a crusade for the first time? What they found is that most people had already heard the gospel presented to them seven or eight times already. Then he found this, that the highest percentage, uh, something close to 80%, had actually heard the gospel from a friend or relative. Christian TV, 0.02%. Almost nothing. Because we hear that a lot. Then... <clears throat> sounds like something good has happened with the Royals, doesn't it? <laughs> sounds good. The next highest percentage next to friend or relative was actually churches. It was like 6%. <laughs> it, it changed my whole paradigm about ministry. You know what that means? It means what we just read. We, the local church, you guys are the ministers of the new covenant. Now, there is a place for Christian TV and a place for crusades. Those things are great and important, but that's not where most people come to faith. He also found out that most people make a decision to follow Christ, at least initially, before the age of 18. That was revolutionary. We didn't know that. We thought it was like adults all the time. But what happened most of the time is that adult maybe had heard the gospel as a child, maybe at Sunday school, maybe as a young person or whatever, before the age of 18, and then maybe they fell away, but then they came back to Christ and then went and gave their life, or, or went down the aisle in a crusade. Really interesting. But you know what's cool about that? You have a purpose in this. You do. You, it's our job to tell the people that we mix with 
the people who are reading our living letter, the people who are smelling us, the people who are, who are, are being ministered to us as ministers of the new covenant. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Not everybody's going to turn on the TV. Not everybody's going to go to a crusade. But it's the people you work with that you see them day in, day out. You're the best one to tell them. I remember years ago, you know, students would say, can you tell my friend about Jesus? Like, okay. You know, I'd go with them and all they do is they look at you like, who is this man? Why'd you bring this strange man to talk to me? No one wants to talk to me. I mean, unless they know you, unless they've smelt me. That's weird. Unless they've gotten to know who you are, unless you have relationship, that's it's totally different. And then the fact is, you're running circles. I'll never run in. You see people and have influence with people that none of us would ever know. That's how he set it up. You are the ministers of the new covenant. So let's do this. Dave, could you put some music on? <clears throat> let's do this for a minute. I just want to ask for just a few minutes. We've heard a lot there about the aroma, the letter, the ministers of the new covenant, the reflecting the Lord's glory, all of that in jars of clay. And you can question all day long, God, I don't know if this was the best plan to use us, but that's his plan. That is his plan to save the world. So the first question is, how are you doing with that? Because I know that, you know, there's times where we fail and we feel like, God, I want to do better and Of course we do. Don't forget what Paul kept saying in that section of Scripture. The power's not in us. It's from him. If you fail, you're in good company. Because the fact is, we all do. And he knew it would be that way. So what he's telling you tonight is, I know I made you how you are. Lean on me. Trust in me. Help me help you do a better job. Let him live through you and reflect his glory through you. And then people will see what they need to see. Another thing to never forget, he's the one who works in their heart, not us. We don't save them. He does. What we're called to do is be faithful to live the way he wants us to live. So there may be somebody here tonight who you just need to get some of that right with him. And I encourage you to do that. Tell him what you need to tell him. Open your heart to him working through you, and he will. But I want to close tonight. I want us to, you you guys to have a time for prayer. So I want to close in prayer with you right now. But the thing I really want to pray with you about is who needs to hear. As I was just saying that a minute ago about you uniquely touch and influence different people than anybody else in this room. Who came to mind then? believe the Holy Spirit would put on someone on your mind and heart that is uniquely your, you have an opportunity to tell that no one else could tell. And I just want to pray for you and that person right now. Father, I'm overwhelmed at the idea that you would use us, but I'm grateful that you do.